one stop in his book, The Cross of Christ, highlights this fact. He says, every religion and ideology has its visual symbol, which illustrates a significant feature of its history or beliefs. To be more specific, Buddhism has the lotus flower to depict the emergence of beauty and harmony that rises out of the muddy chaos. You may know that Judaism has the Star of David speaking to that unique covenant that God had made with David. Islam has the crescent a symbol of the sovereignty of the Byzantine Empire during that time. Christianity has no exception. As we know, and even we look behind uh, this middle-aged man in the back, we see the cross. Christianity has as its central symbol a cross. And the cross, of course, reminds each and every one of us of the apex, the centerpiece, of the foundation of the gospel, the good news that God speaks and reveals to the world. And that, of course, is the reminder of the death of Jesus Christ. Somewhat surprising to have a symbol that conveys the most significant and meaningful part of what we believe to be true about Christianity to be a symbol of one of the most grotesque and heinous forms of execution that's taken place in human history. And yet nonetheless, as surprising as it is, as heinous as it is, we understand that this symbol uh, points to such a glory, an event and a person that took place that that reveals a unique glory that everything else in comparison pales. So today we begin, Matthew 26, grab your Bibles. We're going to read the opening verses. But understand, as we move into this section of of Matthew, we're moving into the Passion Narratives. you, You may not know this. Maybe you're new to renovation. Maybe you've been here forever, whatever. We've been in Matthew for like five years. And we've actually been in Holy Week since April. And we won't finish Holy Week till next April. So we have been going through this slowly and methodically, verse by verse, section by section. And we enter into a new uh, a section called the Passion Narratives. And so over the next 17 weeks, we're going to take a look at the story behind the symbol. As we do, again, each and every week, we are focusing on the apex and the centerpiece of what the good news of the Gospel is, is the death of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We will see and read what happens in detail. We will experience together in detail how Jesus dies and suffers. And each and every week, we will be able to point to why Jesus died. Not just what happens to Jesus, not just how He suffers and dies, but we'll be able to look below the surface to see a great purpose that is behind it all. 
So what happens to Jesus? How does he suffer? And ultimately, why does he suffer? And to that, we turn to Matthew 26, verses 1 through 5. Follow along with me. When Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, You know that after two days, the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God abides forever. All God's people said, Amen. Let's pray. Father, we come to you in the name of Christ, our Savior and Lord. We pray that your Spirit would be at work in us, drawing us to Christ, uh, pointing us to Him. May our hearts and minds be attentive to the centerpiece of what Jesus has done for us, the centerpiece of the Gospel. Would you deepen our faith today? Would you strengthen those who are weary? Would you provide grace to those in need? We look to you. We need you. We trust in you. Do this work, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. Again, we are in Holy Week. Depending on who you read, this is Tuesday, Wednesday-ish. Okay? So we've been in this a particular uh, part of Jesus' life and ministry known as Holy Week for quite some time. And we see now in the, this opening verse that, that Jesus is finished with all of these sayings. Look at verse 1. When Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples. Seven weeks was quite a long time ago. Maybe you forgot, but we spent uh, quite some time in Matthew 24 and 25, which was called the Olivet Discourse. And Jesus taught. He taught about the future. He taught about what they could expect in the days ahead. Many of those Times he was pointing to things they would experience in their life, and of course, things that they would experience in the future as the people of God. But even beyond that, there's even a different, a more um, uh, profound transition that's taking place here. He's not just finished with the Olivet Discourse, he's finished with all of his teaching, with all of his sayings. Right? If you go all the way back to Matthew 4, which was a while back, we see that he, uh, that Matthew records that he began teaching about the kingdom. Matthew 4.17 says, From that time Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So really we see Jesus' teaching ministry coming to a transition moment, to a close. And now we understand that Jesus is embarking on this journey to Golgotha. And he tells him that. He says, right, when he's done with all these sayings, he says, you know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Jesus knows and makes known the suffering that he will endure. This is not the first time that we have heard Jesus talk about this. 
This is not brand new to the disciples. This is not brand new to us in this series. This is not the first time. You go back to Matthew 16. Jesus says this, or Matthew records this, For that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and on the third day be raised. If you remember, Peter responds with, you know, no way. And uh, Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. You don't, you've not set your mind on the things of God, but the things of man. So just a shock and almost offended the disciples by this idea that Jesus would endure this and die in this way. Matthew 17, just a chapter later, as they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And then Matthew 20, and as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the twelve disciples aside, and on the way he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. You see, there's this repetition and reminder in Jesus' ministry and his teaching to the disciples that this is what is going to happen. They may be offended by it. They may be distressed by it. They may be unresponsive to it in Matthew 20, confused by it as we see at times. But this is going to happen. Jesus knows this. And he increasingly, in more clear ways, makes known the reality that he will indeed suffer and he will die. And now we see this, that this reality, this looming event is imminent. He says, after two days, the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. He's saying, listen, I know I've been talking about this, but it's literally 48 hours away now. It's this close. It's imminent. Right? If you've ever experienced this, I think you'll understand, right? The, the closer a dreaded experience is, the greater the level of anxiety that's attached to it. Right? Evelyn came home Tuesday. And it was great to have Evelyn back. But every day, the anxiety of her going back to college again today in about three hours has just slightly increased. And this morning I was crying. Because this just isn't right. The closer a dreaded experience is, the greater the anxiety that's associated with it. I even think a couple months back, like all summer, right? I was thinking, wait, you know, 15, 10 years ago, I was like, oh man, she's class of 2022. She ain't going anywhere for a long time. And then she went into high school. And then it was her senior year. Oh, it's 10 months away. And then she graduated. Oh, we got 12 weeks. And then slowly, the anxiety continued to build all summer till we're just a total mess in Cedarville, Ohio. And then we drove away and we were relieved. Finally, that's going away. <laughs> no, that didn't happen, right? What about think back to the 42 years I knew my grandparents. 
and you guys all know how special they were to me, but there was a moment when I was like 10 where I realized they're in their 50s. They were young grandparents. Health isn't that great. What do I got? 20 years, 30 years left? 20 years left, right? As I got older and we experienced more and more life and more and more of folks in their generation passed, there was this increased anxiety in me that one day they would pass and they would go home to be with Jesus and they wouldn't be with us anymore. And I'll never forget 2020 was just rough as we experienced that. And the, again, the, the, there, was, there was an experience, a, a thing in the future. I knew it would happen. It was something I dreaded. I remember maybe like 2018, 2019, it hit me hard as I began to realize that I've never really experienced that kind of loss, like real deep, heavy loss before, that the Lord in His grace had spared me from that. But I knew in my head, pretty soon, we're going to be lost, and it's going to be hard. And as that day approached, the level of anxiety that was associated with that would increase. Now, that doesn't dispel the level of hope that I had them to go be with Christ. Amen? There was a hope beyond that that I saw and was real and could grab a hold of. But nonetheless, the, the closer a dreaded experience, the greater the level of anxiety that is associated with that. And so you think about Christ knowing this. He knows what's coming. He's known it. Uh, throughout all eternity, he's known it. But even in his human experience, this is a day that he knew would come, and now he's telling his disciples, and his disciples are offended, they're distressed, they're silent, confused, they don't know, really know what's going on. But now when you hear these words, in two days, the Son of Man will be delivered into the hands of men, and he will be crucified. You could imagine the kind of intensity or the anxiety or the confusion and the emotions in their heart. I can't imagine what they were feeling at this time, both Jesus and the disciples. But Jesus knows, and He makes known when He will suffer. It's going to happen in two days. We are very close. Not only does He know and make known when He will suffer, but He also knows and makes known how He will suffer. The Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Jesus knows that He will suffer and die by crucifixion. As we've already alluded to in the introduction of this message, crucifixion is a brutal form of capital punishment in the ancient world. The Roman Empire was known for this. It was brutal. It was heinous. It was excruciating. It was slow. And crucifixion was shameful because it was done in public. involved the affixing of criminals to a cross or a tree with nails in the wrists and the feet. When one was crucified, they were stripped naked and they would slowly die either by shock or asphyxiation. It was heinous. It was horrific. It was the worst possible torture you could imagine. So when Jesus tells his disciples how he will suffer, he says, that's what's going to happen to me. I'm going to endure the most heinous, horrific, shameful, disgraceful form of human torture 
and then I will die. I'm going to die in that way. And Jesus tells them. He knows what he will endure, and he makes it known to them. But not only that, Jesus knows and makes known why he will suffer. So he knows what will happen. He knows how it's going to happen. And we see here as well. And, and, and I think we need to slow down here for a minute because we might miss this. Maybe say, where's he getting this from the text? Where's this in the passage? Please understand that if we don't slow down and think for a minute and look at these words, we might miss why Jesus suffers. He tells us, after two days, the Passover is coming. The Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Okay, he's saying this, two days, the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. We might read that and go, oh, those are just happenstance. Oh, that's just coincidence. As if it's two unconnected things. If it just, the stars just happen to be aligning, and when Jesus is delivered up, just happens to be the Passover. But that is farthest from the truth that we could possibly think. The Passover, the feast, that was about to take place, and all the events surrounding it, and the delivering up of the Son of Man to be crucified, is, is an inextricably linked thing. You cannot separate the two. And as we think about it, we uncover the purpose of why Jesus is heading to his death. The Passover brings us all the way back to Exodus chapter 12 and 13. It recounts the instructions the Lord gave the people of Israel as they were about to journey out of Egypt into their promised land. It pointed to their redemption. It was the final plague if you remember, of God's judgment on the Egyptians and Pharaoh. Do you remember this? The angel of death would come in in the middle of the night, would come into the camp, would pass through and pass over those who had the blood of the Lamb on the doorpost of their house. If the blood of the Lamb was not on the doorpost of the house, the firstborn would die. This Passover lamb was the substitute sacrifice that was offered to atone for sins. And as we understand redemptive history, year in and year out, offered on the Day of Atonement by the high priest, a sinful human being himself, that this would never fully satisfy nor make atonement for the sins of the people. If anything, Hebrews tells us that it was an annual reminder that sin still remained. But this Passover pointed to a day in which a perfect offering would be made by a perfect priest who offers a perfect sacrifice that would satisfy God's wrath and secure a redemption that was so much greater than the redemption of being brought out of Egypt but a redemption that would bring God's people out of sin. And so as we hear Jesus' words about in two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified, we see the intersection of promise and fulfillment 
that is about to take place. That the Passover was something that pointed to a perfect sacrifice to be given by a perfect priest. And that was Jesus. We see Jesus dying voluntarily, sacrificially, to atone for our sin. I want you to understand that as we walk through this over the next 17 weeks, that what we are seeing here is the, is the atonement that Jesus provides for our sins. Remember, it is not for His sins, but for ours. 1 Corinthians 15.3 what I received, I passed on to you as a first importance, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scripture. Matthew one twenty one, opening passages in this series a long time ago where the name of Jesus was given. Why was He named Jesus? Because He would save His people from what? Their sins. That ultimately, this is what Jesus came for. This is what Jesus lived for. This is what Jesus died for. That we might be saved from our sins. Not that we would just have an amazing, cool, blessed life with no problems and no suffering. Not that just so we can live with temporal blessings here and now, but so that Jesus would deal with our greatest problem, and that was our sin and rebellion against God. A problem that we could not deal with on our own. A debt that we could not pay for on our own. Jesus fully and satisfactorily provides it in His death. He is the one who atones for our sins. That's why. He's the Passover Lamb. Remember what John said? Right? Here comes the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Do you know that about Jesus? Do you know that your greatest problem is sin in relationship to God? And do you know that Jesus Christ willingly, sacrificially offered Himself up for you to atone for your sin so that you might be brought back into relationship with Him? Have you placed your faith, hope, and trust solely in Him that there's no conceivable way that you could ever earn merit or, or conjure up enough righteousness in and of yourself to secure your own relationship with God that you need Jesus Christ and that He gave Himself for you? Have you embraced that by faith? That's the centerpiece of the Gospel. That's what we preach. We preach Him and Him crucified as the atonement for our sins. Jesus knows that. And He willingly and voluntarily gives His life for that purpose. I want you to see that more and more. Every week, all 17 weeks, we better be reminding ourselves of that. That this is Jesus suffering and giving His life in death for our sins. Jesus knows and makes known the suffering that He will endure. While Jesus is making these things known, His opponents are gathering together. At the same time, they're gathering and they're plotting. They want to arrest and kill Jesus. Look what Matthew goes on to tell us in these final verses here. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar 
among the people. Jesus knows and makes known his suffering. And at the very same time, the the religious big dogs of the day, the the religious elites, the high priests and the chief, uh, um, the chief priests and the elders of the people, they get together. They're in the palace of the high priest. It feels really official. It feels powerful, right? Uh, They're formally getting together in the in the palace. And they're plotting. They want to arrest Jesus. So they scheme and they conspire. They want to kill him. But not during the feast. We're going to have to wait a little bit. Not at this point, right? All these people have gathered. And we understand Jesus is quite popular. And we don't want to cause a stir. We don't want to upset the people. So we're going to wait. But man, this is becoming an opportune time for us to arrest Him and kill Him, but we need to wait. Yet we understand that over the next 48 hours, which Jesus said, even though they want to wait probably a week plus, Jesus says it's happening in two days. What's going on here? What we see here is the plan of God Sovereignly being orchestrated in these events. And we see the plots of men. One is saying we're going to wait. The other is saying 48 hours. One is saying I'm going to die. I'm going to be delivered up. The other is saying let's kill him. Let's arrest him. What we see is this amazing thing where God is sovereign over all these events. I want you to see that today. That's the main thing, really, that I want you to see. That the suffering that Jesus endures, it's all according to plan. And the emphasis there is God's plan. It's all according to God's plan. Yes, we have the plots and the schemes of men who in their wickedness wanted to, are, are offended by and threatened by and want to do away with this Jesus, whom they reject. But at the very same time, we see this a sacrificial God, this providential God that is working in and through all of these things. Isn't that an amazing thing to think about? Jesus says that in two days I will be delivered up. But later on in the story, we know that Peter preaches a message in Acts 2. And what does he say? He says, men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God, with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus, don't, don't miss this phrase, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. What happened? This is after the fact. What does Peter say? He says, here's what happened. He was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. And you killed him by the hands of sinful men. You crucified and killed him. So which is it? Did they take his life? Did they kill him? Jesus said, no one takes my life. I lay it down. Was it the plots of men in their wickedness that killed Jesus? Yes. But ultimately, no. It was according to the plan of God. You see God sovereignly at work in this. And the church is preaching that. This all happened according to the predetermined 
plan and foreknowledge of God. In Romans 8.31, Paul says this. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, delivered Him up for us all, how will He not also along with Him graciously give us all things? It was the Father who graciously gave His Son up for us all. This is the love of the Father. Not just, or ultimately, the wickedness of men who plot and scheme. But what we see here as we journey through this passion narrative all the way to Golgotha, we see the Father, out of love, giving up His Son to atone for our sins. This is according to the plan of God and a demonstration of the love of the Father. This is love. Not that we have loved Him, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Amen? This is love demonstrated. This is sovereignty displayed. This is the plan of God. It's all working out in these details. Octavius Winslow says this, Who delivered up Jesus to die? Not Judas for money. Not Pilate for fear. Not the Jews for envy. But the Father for love. This is the Father. This is the outworking of the eternal plan of God to save His people for Himself from their sins. Don't miss, in the midst of the suffering, don't miss the sovereignty of God in this. He is bringing about His purposes. He is working out our salvation. He is bringing all of His promises to fruition. And He is doing it in and through the plots and the schemes of wicked people. Do you believe in a God that is sovereign over even the plans and the wickedness of men? That's what the Scriptures reveal. That's the kind of God that we serve. I think that gives us such confidence in the face of difficulty, persecution, and tribulation in this world that God is at work in and through even the schemes of men who would cause suffering for His people and ultimately we see suffering and death for His Son. And so as we walk through this narrative together, we know that the suffering of Jesus, that all that He endures, it's all according to plan. It's not taken by surprise. We know this is the plan. And so I want to encourage us today to respond. But I understand that this is going to be a response that I'm hope, I hope is reinforced week in and week out between now and Easter Sunday. It's reinforced. It's deepened. It may not all happen at once. But maybe this is a way to approach these particular passages and narratives. Number one, we respond, because we know it's according to plan, we can respond in faith. We can look at what God is doing and what He has done in Christ and all the promises that He has fulfilled, and we can have faith in our sovereign God. Pray that through this journey, our faith will be deepened and strengthened 
So my encouragement to you is trust Him today. He's at work perfectly, sufficiently in Christ. Maybe for the first time, trust in Him to have brought a solution to your greatest problem, providing your greatest need. Trust in Jesus today, His suffering and death. Number two, as I was thinking about this, man, as we walk through this together, I think this should well up within us a deep sorrow for our sin. I'm not talking about just feel bad. I'm talking about a sorrow that leads to repentance. Man, if there's anything that would motivate us to turn away from sin and turn to God, ultimately, for salvation, and also, in the, in the struggle we have day in, day out with our flesh and sinful nature, if there's anything that would motivate us to turn away from our sin and turn to God, it would be interacting with the suffering that Jesus endured for it. Have you thought about that? We talk about Jesus dying all the time. Jesus died for us. He died for our sins. Oh, yeah, he died for you. Jesus loves you. He died for you. So true. So sweet. So good. I don't want to minimize that at all. And we should be talking about it constantly, ordinarily. But I sense that sometimes it becomes so familiar and we say it so quickly that it's not really taking personal deep roots into our soul, really translating into how we live. And I wonder if we can slowly, thoughtfully, in meditation and prayer, consider the suffering of Jesus Christ. And it might promote and prompt within us a newfound desire to walk in faithfulness and to walk away from the sins that so easily entice us and lure us away. That it could deepen our, uh, our affection for Christ and cause us to despise those things that the enemy would hold out to us as false promises in sin. I think this is a sorrow. We can have a godly sorrow as we walk through this passage that leads us to repentance. So I wonder what sin over the next 17 weeks can the Lord bring a greater amount of sanctification in our life as we just think about what Jesus had to endure for the sin that we love so much. Number three, appreciation for Christ's sacrifice. When someone gives a gift to you, the appropriate response is gratitude. Amen? Understand this. There is no greater gift ever conceived or provided than Jesus Christ giving His life to you in death. And so there is no more appropriate response to this gift than gratitude. Can you simply rest? And, and, and what Christ has done and thank Him for His gift. Thank you, Jesus, for enduring this suffering for me. I think this deepens our gratitude. And of course, if this is the most clear demonstration of love given to us, then I think we respond by loving Christ in return. Right? Romans 5. God demonstrates His own love toward us, and while we were sinners, Christ died for us. 
The death of Jesus is the demonstration of God's love to people like you and me. This is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and gave His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. This is love. Every week, for 17 weeks, we are looking at and and considering and singing about and praying about and preaching about the love of God in Jesus Christ who died for our sins. And if we can engage the love of Jesus and receive it and rest in it and rejoice in it and consider it all the more, it is my hope that in the end we are magnetically drawn to a deeper and more profound love for Jesus himself in return. So love him. In some ways, respond today with, I trust you, Jesus. I turn from sin to you, Jesus. I thank you, Jesus. And I love you, Jesus. That's my hope. And last thing, as we walk through this, let's not forget the end of this story. Amen? We are going to look at suffering that is so personal, intense, and undeserved. We are going to look at pain and sorrow. We're going to see abandonment. We're going to see betrayal. We're going to see something that's gruesome and horrible. But we don't journey through this passage unaware of the last chapter. So even as we journey through this passage, even as our ears are attentive to the center of the gospel, the death of our Lord Jesus Christ, May our eyes be on the hope of the resurrection. So let's journey through this with faith and repentance and gratitude and love and, of course, with hope. And if you want to put all of that into one big bucket, I just pray that as we journey through this together as a church, that we will be magnetically drawn to love and awe and worship and connection with the Lord Jesus Christ. What does Paul say in Philippians chapter 3? I just want to know Jesus. Everything is rubbish in comparison to knowing who Jesus is. Matter of fact, I want to know Jesus so much that I want to participate in His sufferings. So as he, we walk through this together, maybe we can find connection and, 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 and subjectively just embrace the objective reality that we are one with Christ. That in some way, maybe, we can, we can uh, know like Paul does. Right? I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. We look at this story and we understand that Jesus died for us. Amen? We did not endure this experience. It was done for us. Someone say amen. But understand this, that in some way that I don't really fully understand or can grab my heart around at times, that yes, Romans 6 says, do you not know all of you who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? There's something personal for us here as we watch and, and listen and learn and dive into something that was done for us. May we have this fellowship with Jesus Understand that this is also emblematic of the suffering and death and resurrection that we will know and receive. Let's not just talk about this conceptually. Let this be a personal experience, a personal journey where we are connecting with our Lord in His suffering. Can we do that together? 
I wonder if beyond this passage, these passages, if a couple resources wouldn't be helpful. And I just want to point them out to you. Colleen has one of them. Anyway, you can raise it up. One, and these will be available, The Cross He Bore by uh, Frederick Leahy. Ethan's read it. It's a devotional journey uh, from Golgotha to the grave. Uh, I would recommend maybe our church go through this January 15th through April 15th. Short, sweet, wonderful supplement to walking through this. Uh, Andreas uh, Kostenberger and Justin Taylor wrote The Final Days of Jesus. This is basically a walk through Holy Week. It could be supplemental to further understanding um, what is taking place in these times. And Doreen is holding up one I forgot to bring today, The Cross of Christ by John Scott. That's going to be thicker, be more theological than walking through, uh, but nonetheless a classic. Point is, let's not miss the opportunity that we have together as a church to walk through the passion narrative. Let's not just ho-hum, ho-drum it. Let's focus. Let's Let's see what the Lord can do to deepen our faith, to deepen our appreciation, to grow within us a greater love for Christ, and of course, a hope in the resurrection. Can we do that together? Great. Here's what we need to know. Everything we're about to read. There's no mistakes here. It's all according to plan. Amen? Suffering Jesus endures for sinners. It's all according to plan. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for just your word and the truth you revealed to us. So good. So so strong. Gives us assurance. We pray that as we walk through this together that Your Spirit would be at work in us. May we be a people that are shaped by the cross of Jesus Christ. Give us deep personal connection to this and also a deep appreciation for the love that You have shown us in Christ. We pray this in His name. Amen. This time we have this great privilege of remembering together celebrating the the death of our Lord Jesus Christ. As I was thinking about just the sovereign plan of God, uh, I was thinking about Isaiah 53 as a way to kind of shape this moment for us. And there's a lot of verses in Isaiah 53 uh, that really reinforce this promise and expectation that we would be a people saved by our sin through a suffering servant. And I'm just going to read one verse, and it's this, Isaiah 53, 6. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned, everyone, to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Amen? That's what we remember at this table. The Lord laid on Him the iniquity of us all. This meal that we celebrate is a new covenant meal. It's one that 
is reserved for those who know Jesus, who trust Jesus, who have been baptized into Christ Jesus, uh, belong to Him. If you're here today, and that's you, we would welcome you to this table. If you're here today and you've not placed your faith, hope, and trust in Jesus, nor have you been baptized into His church, uh, we would ask that you abstain from this meal so that we can be obedient. But understand this. At any point, we would love to talk with you about what it means to know and trust Christ as Savior. What it means to be saved from sin. How you can be reconciled back to Him. Of course, that's you. You haven't been baptized yet. We'd love to talk to you about that as well. But this meal is indeed reserved for those who know Christ, trust Christ, been baptized into Christ Jesus. We have two stations here. I'm going to invite the ushers to come forward, the servers, so please come forward. They will stand on either side. I'm going to instruct that we actually come down the center aisle, take the elements and receive, uh, uh, return back to your seat along the side aisles. There is both bread and there is juice symbolic of the blood and body of Jesus that was broken and the blood that was shed for us. And so, yeah, what a time to commemorate and be thoughtful of what Christ has done for us. Let's pray together, uh, and I'll invite you to come forward. Father God, we praise you for your sovereign plan. We praise you for your infinite love. We ask that as we approach and receive from the table of our Lord Jesus, that you would give us Faith, repentance, and love, appreciation for Christ Jesus. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, please come forward and receive.